Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host... Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to Totally 80s. Since we're all at home, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram and email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. And as a reminder, if you want to see our lovely faces, you can catch this episode on video as well as on our Totally 80s YouTube channel. So check that out. And Joining me today, as always, is my partner in all things 80-licious. That's not a word. I just made it up. <laughs> John Hughes, the other John Hughes. 80 fantastic. 80 fantastic. Let's go with 80-tabulous. 80, 80 no, let's go oh. with 80-stastic. Right. So today I'm excited because we're going to bring you all the fake news, the good kind of fake news, the fakery and chicanery that we enjoy. Today we are talking about our favorite fake bands of the 1980s because sometimes to quote the great Bono, they're even better than the real thing so yeah. we're going to talk about when all these shows went punk like chips and quincy the dregs of humanity i just actually the spoiler alert because the dregs of humanity is like the greatest moment in television history not even just 80s totally everything totally all decades it's like the best thing ever so let's just dive into it um, did you ever see, I'm curious about this. This is the gold standard for me, John. I'm curious because I know you did not grow up in Southern California or on the West Coast. You grew up in Ohio, correct? Midwest grew- boy. Do you remember the Dregs of Humanity episode um, of It's Your Move? The Jason, the very short-lived, it was only one season, should have been multiple seasons. The Jason Bateman show, I don't care. Ozark's great. Good for you, Jason Bateman. Ozark's great. No. Your development, whatever. <laughs> Rest of development was fine. The greatest moment in television history in terms of Jason Bateman's career or life was It's Your Move. Do you um, remember the show? Absolutely. Uh, no argument here because my little sister loved Silver Spoons. And mm-hmm. the character that he played was like the smarmy, you know, always manipulative brat of a kid. And they loved that character so much they wanted to spin him off, and that was the way to do it. And when first premiered, it was like this nasty show. And when you realize it was by the same creators of Married with Children, it all mm-hmm. made sense. I was addicted to that show, and I, the rest of my family hated it. So I had to like fight to watch it. But Dregs of Humanity, I remember because part two was preempted. Yeah. On the on everywhere but the West Coast. So here's yeah. here here's a nutshell. It was a great. It was a very special two part story arc. And I'll say it in a nutshell that a fake band created, not unlike the skeletons in the Touch of Grey video, 
by the Grateful Dead. They're made out of actual skeletons from Science Lab. They have to have like a last minute prom band. So they string up these um, people on wires. They string up, sorry, they string up these skeletons on wires. And by the way, the guy who played Eli, the like put upon sidekick of Jason Bateman, he went on to be like some like guy who does like Rube Goldberg machines. Like he went on to, he did like the machines that are in the All Things Must Pass video by OK Go. Like he actually went on to be like a guy who did this in real life. That's why these skeletons were so good. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the dregs of humanity. So they become a sensation and long story long, it gets out of hand and they have to be killed off in some crazy accident in order to, because it's gone out of hand and the the ruse is about to be up. And then Nina Blackwood is on and, you know, and it's an amazing episode. So the first episode was a cliffhanger with uh, Jason Bateman's character finding out that the dregs of humanity who are storming up the charts with their, it's weird because they had like a boogie rock song. It was called Sweaty Betty. But yeah. they look they look like all the like they all look like a bunch of Eddies, like the Iron Maiden mascot. Like they all look like they would be like a metal band. Metal they band, right. They're all like druid robes with bones. So the Dregs of Humanity get an offer to like for tens of thousands of dollars to headline the oh, Hollywood Palladium. Thousand dollars, I remember the exact amount. Nice, nice. So they're gonna do it, but then like I said, they realize that they can't keep up this charade forever. So that's how it ended with episode one. Episode two is where we found out how Jason Bateman and David Garris, the guy who played Norm, uh, not Norm, he was Steve, was he? No, he was Norm on It's Your Movie with Steve on Married with Children. Right. They they do this plot to kill off the band. So that's how everyone was supposed to find out. But apparently that episode, I did not know this at the time, was preempted in most of the United States other than the West Coast by a President Reagan press conference because apparently America did not have its priorities in the right place at that time. What's more important, finding out what happened to the dregs of humanity or whatever the president had to say? I think the answer is clear, John. That cliffhanger was unresolved for me for 30 plus years. (laughs) In the pre-YouTube days, I found someone had a complete burned bootleg uh, season of It's Your Move on iOffer.com. And I couldn't hit the the checkout button fast enough. Oh, my God. Dubs of dubs, four generations down. But you better believe I sat there and watched the entire thing. And I finally got to see the conclusion of the Drugs of Humanity episode years ago. I, I thought the show was really popular because uh, my sister and I watched it, you know, live and we knew what happened. It was only until years later when I would be talking to people and no one ever remembered the Drugs of Humanity except for this small little group. I found out that most people didn't get that kind of closure. So we're happy to provide it for you. Now, I can't find this episode anywhere online. Every once in a while it shows. Do you have that? Uh, I'll hook you up. I'll hook you up. All right. Sounds good. So that... That they were sort of like a metal band that sounded like the Doobie Brothers, and I think they set the gold standard for just an amazing fake band whose like legacy has outlasted the 30 or so minutes it was on television. All right, the show itself is interesting because it was real proto married with children. Mm-hmm. It, the, the creators, you know, they always joke that married with children was the anti Cosby show, it was like mm-hmm. 
exact opposite they went but they kind of laid the groundwork with it's your move people were nasty to each other they were uh underhanded and sneaky until the yeah until they tried to save the show near the end of the season yes. throughout the original concept well see the thing was was that the jason bateman character was an asshole basically for lack of a better word but he always got away with it unlike most shows where someone acts like that and then they learn a lesson at the end of the 30 minutes and they he never learned a lesson. He got away with it every time. I, I prefer lovable scamp. Yeah, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Either or. But the parents thought he was a bad influence and they wrote complaints to the network and the network rewrote it for him to get his comeuppance. And then the show tanked after that. But, yeah, you know. Bad move. But he was kind of punk rock in a way, which brings me to what I think is actually a subsect of the whole fake band genre is this era we had actually several years too late. TV is, is slow to get with the trends about punk rock and how it's bad and how there was that after school special, the day my kid went punk. Yes. I don't know if you saw that. Actually, that actually was a, a, it starts off as a cautionary tale, but it actually had a nice message at the end that you shouldn't judge a punk by his cover and just because he's got you know safe he's wearing a hefty bag and has safety pins in his face, which is how all TV punks look then. He can still be a nice guy. Yeah. There was always a punk episode. Like there was a silver spoons episode where like Ricky Shorter goes punk for like one episode and he like tears up a shirt and he like um, literally wears like a trash bag and suddenly he's punk. That's what punk is. apparently. Spiked hair in like leather mm -hmm. and, and studs, you know, dog with, collar from Petco yeah, more like, more like metal. People couldn't get it right. But there were two really excellent classic punk rock episodes that really have stood the test of time. And they were, you have to mention them in the same breath, the Chips episode and the Quincy episode. Yes. Which is your preferred episode? Uh, you have to the Chips one, because the band is much more uh, fear influenced. The band, the punk band Fear, uh, they kind of give off a leaving kind of vibe. Uh <laughs> and now, all the way from the hills of Holly Weird, welcome And I remember how that song went. The song, um, I think it was called Pain, or it was called I Dig Pain. Mm. This is how it went. Take a hunk of concrete. No, 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 no. Shove it in my face. No, 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 no. I like to play with razor blades. No, no, I hate the human race. That's a jam. That's, a, that's, a, that's an accurate song. I don't know. So the Chips episode, it, had a, it actually had like a new wave pop band or pop girl named Snow Pink, who was played by one of the eights from eight is enough. I don't know. One of the, one of the daughters from eight is enough. And she's like the virtual, like sweet pop princess. And it's about all the bands. And I believe she wins, but she's up against pain. That's the band you're thinking of. That sounded like fear. Yeah. They were called pain. Yeah. And I Thank actually, you. they were from, they were introduced as being all the way from the Hills of Hollyweird, which is factual. That's where punk was. And, but I don't there know, was, it kind of misses the whole social ethos of punk, but okay. <laughs> well, you know, I this was 82 when this came out, I think, 82-ish. So you have to remember by then, L.A. punk, because this took place in L.A., had True. gotten a bit macho and a bit um, a bit misogynist and a bit... a bit um, more, more social D mommy's little monster type. Yeah, 
Gotcha. So, right. you know, maybe there was someone working for Chips who actually did a little research. Meanwhile, over on Quincy, there was the band Mayhem who had yeah. their hit Next Stop Nowhere, which I actually can't sing for you. So I guess I have to agree with you that the Chips episode was superior. But neither of them were very accurate versions of punk. I'm no, nowhere near. <laughs> I always like when these shows when like the star would like appear like in punk clothes, and it was like supposed to be a big shock. Like, <gasps> look, punk is punk now. They were about as punk as Vivian from the Young Ones. Like they were sharing the same outfits, but they had a different accent. That's basically yeah. where it was. But it was, I just love the fact that it was like all of these, the after school special and these two uh, episodes and all the other kind of like one off punk things. I guess they were written to like scare parents into thinking like if your kid's dressing for. this way. Who are they written for? I, 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 were they written for uh, the parents? Uh, they written for the kids to try to get them to watch Chips and Quincy? <laughs> what? Why would Quincy do a punk rock episode except to fear mong? Um, you know, to make parents because Quincy was like the Matlock of its day. Matlock. Uh, you know, <laughs> 65 plus and nothing but Geritol commercials. Uh, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't yeah, it. I don't. I don't think it was necessary. These were necessarily going to be like, "Hey, we need to like uh, youthify our demographic." Hey, what are the kids like these days in 1982? Punk, punks, punks the thing. Let's do a punk episode, and then we'll have all the teenagers watching Quincy this week. Yeah, probably not. But we're talking about it, you know, 30 years later. So I guess you know they made their mark. Reasons. <laughs> uh, so wrong. It's right. But I noticed, John, you're wearing a monkey's t-shirt today intentionally because of the yeah. theme you know although fake band that became a real band you know like pinocchio becoming a real boy but but well, can we talk thing. about yes can we talk about the new monkeys my name is helen and i live with these four rock stars in a house you're just never gonna believe That's why I kind of wore this. <laughs> I took your bait so readily. I am maybe one of the few people who bought the new Monkees record when it came out. Now, granted, I oh, you're raising your hand. The us two. Now, did you buy yours from the cutout bin for 99 cents? Because I will fess up to that. I got mine in the cutout bin for 99 cents on vinyl. I sure did. So back me up on a couple things. The song, What I Want, is basically laid the template for Walk the Moon, Shut Up and Dance. They're the same song. Listen uh, to him back to back. What I want is a jam, Thank unapologetic mid eighties, uh, cutting crew, Mr. Mr. Richard page ish kind of jam. I'm, you glass know, tiger, glass yeah. tiger, all that jazz. <laughs> Johnny hates jazz. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's a jam. It's a good 
it's a good 80s tune. You know, you got the gated snare, you got everything else going on, but it's a good song. It's well crafted. And you've got uh, the man inside the or the boy inside a man by, uh, you know, Mr. Red Rider himself. Tom Cochran wrote that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you've got really kind of assured. You know, I know I'm going to go on a limb here or say it's really assured vocal performances from Marty Ross and the other guys in the band. I, I'm going to defend the new monkeys music. The I am very, <laughs> yeah, we'll get to the show in a moment. I think we're on the same page. I'm very surprised because I know obviously you are a big fan of the original monkeys and you've worked with them and a lot. Yeah. I'm looking behind, not only you're wearing a monkeys t-shirt, but if you're watching this on YouTube, you got like monkeys gold records behind you. I would think because the monkeys fans, hated the new monkeys when they came out hated them and i actually think that this show the show was actually terrible but i do think the show might have had a better chance had it not been called the new monkeys and it had just because obviously at that time the monkeys were having this revival because mtv had started showing old episodes and the monkeys got back together did this big anniversary like 20 year anniversary tour and it was a huge success so they were trying to make lightning strike twice i feel if they had just called it something else and said like brought to you from the creators of the monkeys this new band called the whatevers it would have done better because like marty ross as you mentioned he was from the wigs he had you know some chops they had a lot of really good like power pop songs my favorite song by them was a song called I Don't Know, which in the in the TV show, the Del Rubio triplets are on the show. It's that something goes, I don't know how I feel about your... I know all the words. I don't know how I feel about her. Is it love or only the night? Am I doing this right? I don't know anything about her. Just how good she feels in my two problems with this well there were multiple problems let's face it one the branding yeah two the show actually was just actually really not good like conceived the guys did their best they Mm -hmm. actually had some comedic chops particularly dino kobus actually had some chops and he he actually used to do all these like cable access kind of like little Mm -hmm. vignettes like dino's kitchen which actually if there was such a thing as YouTube and going viral, then it was like that sort of short bite comedy sketches. He had some chops. The show was not good. The branding was not good, but also like the actual monkeys were really against it. So like any kind of, um, and understandably so it was the producer diluting their- really, really screwed up because their big uh, brainy idea was to have the, the monkeys, come on the show and pass the torch to the new monkey and be kind of like, you know what? Hey kids, you put their arms around them. Like give these kids a chance and keep in mind the monkeys had just had a top 20 hit. I mean, just months prior, they were not over at that point anymore. Mm-hmm. They were a viable touring entity that were still scoring hit songs and, and selling records. Why in God's name would Mickey, Peter and Davey, hand that off to a bunch of things, a, a, a marketing construct they have nothing to do with yet again, because these guys got screwed over the first time and here yeah. they asked to get screwed over again. No, because they didn't, they didn't own the name and now their name is going to get diluted. There's a couple different monkeys. Mickey yeah. Dolan, who I'm sure you know, ha, you know, after the monkeys had a very successful career, mostly in England, directing, directing mostly television shows, right? He became a director. He had actually been tapped 
to direct the pilot episode mm -hmm. of The Monkees. That's what he told me in an interview I did right around the time that Good Times came out, a record that you had a lot to do with. Another one of the many times that uh, the, monkeys have, the original Monkees have had a revival. And so I asked him about that, and he told me that. He basically said, screw you. I'm not yeah. directing this. If you want me to direct an episode where we are sort of saying, like, we're retiring. But there were moments, there were things about it I liked. One, as you mentioned, the music little bits of comedy. And I do actually think the camaraderie between the four guys was real because I don't know if you know that they're all still friends. Yes. Like in fact, there's been a thawing of the ice in terms of the original monkeys and the new monkeys. Uh, uh, Marty's joined Mickey on stage a few times for some shows, uh, mm -hmm. even, you know, been some meet and greets where they've kind of gotten together and there's been a little reassessment of the new monkeys, uh, the album, uh, and the music. And there's a fan <laughs> there for only lasting 13 episodes in syndication. It was supposed to be, I believe 23 and they just like they said, just, no, no. Yeah. But it's, it's really funny because I may have been responsible for a bit of the thawing because I did an oral history of the new monkeys when they celebrated, well, maybe they weren't celebrating, but they were celebrating. I don't know how many people were celebrating, but when the uh, anniversary, I guess it would have been the 30th anniversary happened. I, I interviewed them and did an oral history and you could tell that maybe there was a little bit of hurt still because of the fact it, it, Dito in particular had been a really big Mickey Dolan's fan. He really, yeah. he was a drummer. Uh, Dito was a drummer, but he also was a comedian. So he really loved the monkeys and he tried a couple of times to reach out to the monkeys and, or to reach out to Mickey. Like they would be at the same kind of like Comic-Con style signing event and Mickey didn't want to have anything to do with him. But I think the fact that they just branded it Instead of, that instead of trying to create a new thing, because Marty said this was when he knew it wasn't going to work. He told his mom that he had gotten this, this gig at the time. It sounded like a really cool gig TV show. And he said it was called The New Monkeys. And she said to him, oh, which one are you going to be? Are you Peter, Davey, Mickey, yeah. or, or Nez? And he was like, ah, crap. Like, that's not what it is. Like, we're not supposed to be. But they did have those roles. There was a dreamy one. There was a funny one. There was a shy, you know, awkward one. They all had their sort of roles. But I like the fact that they've sort of started patching it up. And I did, because I'm a total dork John, I went to a reunion that they did. Or I guess every five years, they actually do an event. And there's this woman who is the biggest new monkeys fan and she organizes them and it wasn't big it wasn't big it was at like a color me mine or one of those kind of places it was like a pizza party but there was about 50 people there some of whom had flown in from other states the group you know did a podcast live and they had all their memorabilia out like old um posters and and things like that and then they performed an acoustic set of the songs we're talking about and you know it's a very small fan base but you know sometimes those fan bases are the ones that are the most passionate. Cause when you find someone who like can sing, I don't know by the new monkeys, like that's, you know, a soulmate for life. So exactly. I, I like the fact that, you know, we're sort of contributing to that reassessment. And I do like the fact that none of them in that group have any sour grapes. They're still friends. They've all gone on to do successful things in their career. They're not, ang you know, I'm sure they wish things had turned out a little differently or been handled a dif little differently, but they have a sense of humor about it all. And they still embrace the fact that they're the new monkeys and I'm embarrassed by it. So yeah. and they have successful careers after it's not like it ruined anyone. No, not at all. In fact, um, yeah, they're all like Dino's a movie director. We've probably oh. talked too much about the new monkeys, but we haven't talked about uh, Joni and Chachi. Oh, do not want to. <laughs>
and silently. Were they, were, that was that was a hit, right? That was a mild hit. Yes. You Ish. You know, yeah. you would know what number it went to on the bubbling under chart. Didn't, it, it didn't bubble under, it fizzled under, the fizzling under chart? I, I think it, uh, you know, drowned under. Um, it's it's uh, that show. Have you ever tried to watch it since it aired, like on YouTube or anything? Can't say I have. John. It is painful. I mean, painfully bad. Kind of like I loved Mork and Mindy as a kid. You try to watch Mork and Mindy now and you want to stab forks in your eyes. I mean... <laughs> It's Fork and Mindy. Fork <laughs> and Mindy, yeah. Uh, it's just, you're like, oh my God. I, I, God rest his soul, Robin Williams. It's like, it's, yeah. it's, it's annoying. Uh, that show probably would never have lasted like more than a couple episodes if it hadn't been for, you know, the, the sheer talent of, you know, Robin Williams forcing, you know, ro making it rise a little bit to the top. Right. But, you know, the Jody and Chachi thing, how many episodes was that? Oh, I think it was just a season, right? 22 episodes, 23 episodes. And then the Happy Days producers learned their lesson and, and brought them right back for the to the, the main show, which, you know, poor Lori Beth and whoever Crystal Bernard's character were <laughs> jettisoned off after one season. Yeah, Joni, you know, she was no leather Tuscadero, let's face it. Some other sitcom bands, do you remember the Permanent Waves from Family Ties? They no. were good. The permanent waves. There's just one episode. This was uh, what was the youngest daughter's name? Teeny others. Jennifer. It was Jennifer's band. They had two songs that were kind of a bop. One of them I can sing right now. It was called "In Love Again." It goes, "Ooh, I'm in love again, in love again, baby, baby." Pretty simple, but it was very like yes. It was very Debbie Gibson sounding. And Christina Applegate was in this episode. It was before Mary with children, speaking of Mary with children. And she is playing keyboards and she's all like Lisa Coleman out. Like she's got like massive shoulder pads and she's right. like giving face. It's great. It's actually not, it's very like mid period banana rama. Like before they got with Stock Aiken Ake Waterman, but yep. like after they were Scott, it's not the music is actually decent. We I didn't really watch Full House, but of course we got to talk about you know we got mentioned at least Jesse and the Rippers. Mm -hmm. you want, and then just mullets galore. Mullets are you know not mm -hmm. as good as El Debarge's mullet, but a mullet nonetheless. Do you remember the aphrodisiacs from Different Strokes? No, you're I can't really believe I'm stumping you. I've never stumped you. Today. Wow. I'm feeling yeah. good about myself. Or I, know. I don't know if I should feel good about myself that I remember this stuff. Uh, they were a funk band that featured the supergroup lineup of Todd Bridges, his stepsister, Dana Plato, and his girlfriend, Jack Jackson. Wow. They, so the, the theme, what I remember of this episode was Todd Bridges is starting a band and he wants to have a female singer and he doesn't know if he should choose his stepsister, uh, played by Dana Plato. Or if he should choose his girlfriend, uh, Charlene, choose by, played by Janet Jackson before she was Janet Jackson. Mm. So his very diplomatic solution is to have them both be in the band and then sing Ebony and Ivory. <laughs> that go. happened. That sure, happened. why not? Ebony and Ivory live together in perfect. 
obviously Gemma and the holograms. Oh were yeah, the, were the ish truly Barbie outrageous. and the they were truly outrageous. Barbie and the Rockers, but most people know about those. I want to ask you if you remember Kid Video with of two course. D's. <laughs> of course you do. Of course I remember Kid Video. Can uh, you explain to me what was happening with that? Was I because I feel like someone put acid in my Lucky Charms when I watched that one. It was what was the show uh, with Rick Springfield in the seventies where uh, Mission Magic, you know, Mission the, Magic, yes. yeah, it was kind of like Mission Magic for the MTV era. You know, these kids went into this TV set where everything was kind of like music video related, and there was live action, there was cartoon, there was a talking animal of some sort. I'm sure. Well, from what I remember from my Lucky Charms acid trip, I remember two things. They were playing in a garage, and then for reasons that are never explained, somehow they get teleported into a cartoon dimension in which they have to be musical slaves. Right. Like they have to play for some dictator and may, uh, for the rest of their lives. And was Robbie Rist involved? Robbie Rist was on that show for sure. Okay. That happened. Yep. That was the happened. music good? Was the music good? Uh, Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There was an album. I don't know. Wait, what? Cool. There was a kid video album. Yeah, there's a kid's video album out there somewhere on Discogs. Pay four hundred dollars <laughs> for it if you want. <laughs> After you buy your new monkeys record. Well, let's <laughs> move on to you know to films. So I think it's obvious that the ultimate uh, '80s fake band for movies is Spinal Tap. I don't even know how much yeah. we need to even establish that. But do you remember their UK counterpart? Oh, bad news. Hey, hey, bad news. <laughs> So that was all the guys from the young ones, right? It was, except for Mike. Mike was not part of Bad eh. News. Eh. Uh, but you don't forget, French and Saunders are on Bad News as well as the groupies they pick up on the tour bus or the tour van, rather. Uh, but <laughs> you've never seen Bad News. It, I, I feel bad because it, did it predate Spinal Tap or was it contemporaneous? Uh, but it's completely. I was always under the impression that it came afterwards, but. That might not be true. I saw it afterwards. That it, it might not Rick be true. Mayle, Aiden Edmondson, uh, and Nigel Planer from The Young Ones, and they have a metal band called Bad News. And, you know, it's it's kind of a weird universe. The Bad News universe is not quite in, in line. They're signed to a record label, yet they have no money. They have no budget. Uh, but they're dealing with label people, and they're on a tour, they got a tour book, but nobody comes to the shows, but then they come to a show and the show is like filled with people. Can we get a streamlined bad news universe, please? <laughs> Maybe they got teleported to the kid video universe. <laughs> I remember, I remember the scene where the character played by Rick, Rick Mail, the scene where he apparently he lives with his mom and like someone comes to the door and he doesn't have his heavy metal wig on. And he's like super embarrassed. That was a really good scene. Um, I remember bits and pieces of it. Is there a way to watch that though? Is it like, did they ever do a DVD? There was a DVD that was a VHS that was put out by Rhino oh, okay. Video. And there was a DVD that was put out by Rhino Video. And nice. basically, you got any promo copies of that in your office, Sean? You long can... before I started uh, at Damn the company. It. But it Damn was it. it was uh, two episodes of a, a British TV show called The Comic Strip. So yes, yes. that's where the origins of it were. And the trivia that I love about it, they have their music video for Bohemian Rhapsody, remake of Bohemian Rhapsody. And the awful guitar solo on the bad <laughs> news version of Bohemian Rhapsody is played by Brian May. Like he deliberately sucked? 
he deliberately sucked. He produced the song and he plays the horrible guitar solo. It's amazing that Brian. Oh my God. has such a good sense of humor that he did that. I never knew that. That's amazing. Well, let's talk about another kind of art imitating life because it started as a fake band, but then actually became a it yielded a successful real life band or launched a successful band. Eddie and the Cruisers. I saw it in the theater. I stood in line at the Galleria Mall to have my 8x10 of Michael Pere, aka Eddie, signed. But it was not a success. Through the magic of cable back in the days where we didn't have a lot of cable channels and every and when cable channels got a, a sort of what was considered a first run movie by their standards at the time, they just played it like pretty much in an endless loop for like three months, like the Z channel select mm -hmm. on. So about a year and a half later is when the soundtrack, which was done by John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, suddenly on the dark side, this like wannabe Bruce Springsteen song is a huge hit, like way later. And... I loved the movie at the time. I'm going to admit at the time, I was young and naive, that ending just blew my friggin' mind. Yeah. Oh my God, Eddie's alive. I'm sorry for the spoiler if people haven't seen it, but Eddie's alive. Sorry, Eddie did not die. Um, he, But let's just face it. The, everyone loved that John Cafferty sound and stuff. Had that second Eddie and the Cruisers record came out, the one that the record label, the difficult second record, yeah. quote unquote, that he want that was inspired by the, the poet Arthur Rimbaud and season in hell. <laughs> that, that wouldn't have sold. That would have flopped. That would have, that would have been, that wouldn't have bubbled under. That would have fizzled under. Let's, <laughs> let's face it. The record label was right. It would have been the Hooters second record. Yes. Did the Hooters do that? Did they go all like uh did that, they pull a Terrence Trent Darby and go all like artsy on their next record? They had like Johnny B, you know, remember their serious, uh, follow-up but the thing about eddie and the cruisers and more importantly john cafferty and the beaver brown band i'm trying to remember who it was somebody did an interview a musician from that area from that same area where john cafferty was from and they said that movie was the biggest mistake that john cafferty in and the beaver brown band made because they were actually a very credible local band there in boston and this just kind of ruined their reputation and they became branded as Springsteen clones. And that's not what they really were. I'm going to kind of raise my hand and go yeah, BS on that. Cause you, you listen to the yeah. song C I T Y snore. Uh, <laughs> Did you ever see the Eddie sequel? I don't know what it was called. Eddie lives or Eddie Two electric boogaloo. There was a sequel where he comes back from the, you know, the fake dead. No, there is. I didn't see it. I just know it exists because wow. Wikipedia is my friend, but it exists apparently where he had, he makes a comeback. He announces that he never died, you know, much like the myths about like Jim Morrison or Elvis mm -hmm. that he's still alive. And there's a sequel. It's probably not good. I don't know if John Cafferty is involved, but you know, what was good. You know what my favorite rock movie of all time is uh, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. Oh, of that, course. Yeah. That is such a great, first of all, it's got my icon. Corinne Burns saying that the, I actually have this quote on my Tinder page. It says I'm perfect, but nobody in this shithole gets me because I don't put out. I wonder why no one's swiping on me, John. I don't get too many swipes. Don't know. But the one person that gets the quote and swipes, swipes right on me 
That would be my soulmate. Yeah. But Corinne is played by Diane Lane. Mm -hmm. It's like a skunk hand, skunk-haired Laura Dern. They're very Riot Girl. And then there's two great fake bands in this because there's the Stains, but then there's also the Looters, who are played by Paul Simonon from The Clash and Steve Jones and Paul Cook from The Sex Pistols. And then there's a third fake band, The Metal Corpses, which is fronted by Fee Waybill. It is a Coachella. It is a, yeah, a triple bill of actually good fake bands. The soundtrack is amazing on this record. That's great. You know, you, and we can't let this go by, especially since you bring up Diane Lane without mentioning her other fake band, Fire Incorporated from Streets of Fire. Streets uh, of Fire, yes. With their great song, Tonight is What It Means to Be Young, the overblown... <laughs> Jim Steinman production that sounds like a meatloaf song with the chick from Face to Face doing the lead vocal. Is uh, that true? Did, very true. Did, uh, did Diane Lane, did she do the singing for The Stain or was that dubbed as well? I couldn't tell you, but I know that the, the vocalist from Boston band Face to Face, not the punk rock band. I know who you mean. 1098 fame did mm -hmm. the vocals for Fire Incorporated. And Fun. it's so funny because the performance in the movie, it's just her and like this you know bar band with a few lead singer or background singers but you listen to the song and it's kind of like this bonnie tyler total eclipse of the heart meatloaf bad out of hell production with like an orchestra and like three to thirty thousand choruses and yeah this band on stage is making that racket since we're talking about films that had multiple bands and were sort of a coachella of fake bands there's one that i think you might know a lot about because mike nesmith was involved and that is tape heads hi i'm ivan alexi even video aces we make rock videos you can have my time to look at this or call me your name was skip ivan give us a call John Cusack, John Cusack. John Cusack, John Cusack. So there were three, there were four, I'm sorry, there were four fake bands in this. The Blender Children, which was fronted by Stiv Baders from the Dead Boys and Lords in the New Church. Ranch Bone, which was actually just a country fishbone, fishbone, but doing country music. Cube Squared, Cube Squared was a Swedish pop band, fake Swedish pop band, whose scene is them singing in the Swedish language, Devo's Baby Doll, but in Swedish. And then, of course, the Swanky Modes, which was actually the Swanky Modes were Sam Moore and Junior Walker, actual legends. And then this film, which starred Tim Robbins and John Cusack as fledgling music video directors, was produced by Mike Nesmith. Like what a part of that isn't rad. So wow. we are we're sort of running out of time, but there's just a couple I'm going to mention as lightning round. Are you aware of who Big Fun are? No. Have you seen Heathers? Of course. Did you know that the song Teen Suicide, in parentheses, don't do it, was written by Don Dixon and played by members of Lex Active. It was played by Don Dixon and Mitch Easter. No, but I know now that I had to go listen to it. <laughs> I am so proud of myself. I don't ever remember stumping you as many times I as I have. You got me. And then there's, of course, Sexual Chocolate from Coming to America, yeah, which is a big one. And then we have to mention Light of Day, speaking of bar bands, the Bar Busters, from Light of Day, because not only was their song, correct me if I'm wrong, song was written by, not by John Cafferty, but by the actual Bruce Springsteen. Right. It was notable for bringing back, for bringing together the musical soulmates that are Michael J. Fox and Joan Jett, clearly. Yeah. But Trent Reznor was in that band. 
He's in the keyboard. in it, and it was filmed in my hometown of Cleveland, and I was living there at the time, and it was a big deal that they were filming that movie in Cleveland. I believe the the bar scenes were filmed at the Cleveland Agora, if I'm remembering correctly, or the Fantasy Theater, one of the two. That's pretty rad. Yeah. So the, la the last band I'm going to mention, because they don't fall into any other category, they're not a band from film, they're not a cartoon band, they're not a band from TV, they're just a band from the figment of Disneyland's Mastermind's inner, uh, uh, they're just a figment from Disneyland Mastermind's imagination, but they're soon going to be part of a film, a documentary called Live from the Space Stage, a Halix story. Are you familiar with Halix? I am not. All right, sit down, children, sit back. Prepare to have your minds blown. So this documentary that just like, understandably completely exceeded its Indiegogo or Kickstarter, whatever it is. It made more money than it was supposed to be. There is something called Defunct Land. It's the like Disneyland look behind like Disney things that went wrong. It's a YouTube series. Yes, They're the ones making this. Halix was, I'm not making this up. This documentary is going to be, it's going to win all the Oscars. So in 1981, they put together a kiss-like glam rock band called Halix to perform at Tomorrowland on the space stage. There are videos of this on YouTube. They had a song called Jailbait. I don't understand why this would be the case to play at Disneyland. But it's insane that this happened. They, it was like they were supposed to be like if Kiss were playing in the Star Wars cantina. There's a Wookiee in the band, like a furry creature, like an abominable like snowman or like a, a Chewbacca type person playing. There's like people dressed in like King Diamond makeup. This was a thing and it only lasted for a year. I think they thought it was going to be like, a, it was going to become a real band. How so, did they ask me? <laughs> I don't know if it, I almost, kind, I almost kind of feel like if you don't know about it, it didn't happen. Well, it, it sounds very familiar. Uh, Disney, you know, has this huge flop on their hands. Marvel Comics <laughs> tried the same thing uh, in 1981, being timely as it was with the Disco Dazzler, which was, uh -huh. a, uh, yes, a partnership with Marvel Comics and Casablanca Records, where they would have this actress, singer, play the Disco Dazzler, and she would have, be, have superpowers and have her own comic book and albums. And eventually Casablanca, you know, in a in a cloud of cocaine dust, pulled out the project. <laughs> And Marvel actually went ahead with the Dazzler, no albums, but the Dazzler is like a member of the X-Men and is a mutant now. So wow. it's sort of like Halix Dazzler kind of failure uh, combination there. Well, not all bands can be gem in the holograms, so let's face no. it. But Halix, it's called Live from the Space, a Space Stage, the story of Halix, and I think it's going to come out this year. And it's so, well, I, I didn't get to go to Disneyland in 1981. So I think that might be the ultimate fake band a band that only played at disneyland for less than a year i gotta hear jailbait by Halix. <laughs> that's your homework assignment for the night it is on youtube and yeah i i need to watch this documentary to find out why people thought that was appropriate for a children's amusement park sure. but perhaps some mysteries will never be solved but we solved a few today and i had a fun time talking about things the good kind of fake news even better than the real thing fake bands of the 80s. I've been Lindsay Parker, and I've been joined by the other John Hughes, and we want to thank you guys for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s, 
And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Bye.